This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 35. Please, teacher. I brought my pencil! What is up, anime fans? Otakunate here with another installment of the Otakunate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Bronx Kuma. Yo, thanks for having me on once again. And this week, we are going to be talking about Please Teacher, released in 2002 by Studio Dome which ran for 13 episodes, well, 12 episodes plus one bonus episode, and we're going to tackle that one plenty, and was directed by Yasunori Ide. And man, this guy was born to direct a show like this, because his other major directorial credits include Burn Up, Hanauko Maid Team, Idol Fighter Suchi Pie, and the second silent Mobius movie. The writer for this was Yosuke Kuroda, and man oh man, Yosuke Kuroda has been around. He's written many things of varying quality. He's written some not-so-good stuff like Valkyrie Drive, Eumeria, and Key. He's written some things that I just think are eh, like High School of the Dead, Jormungand, and Puni Puni Poemi. But in terms of his good stuff, oh, hold on to your hats, people, because this guy, when he is good, he knocks it out of the park, both writing originals and adaptations. This guy did a lot of work for AIC, writing a lot of Tenchi spinoffs. He wrote Tenchi Muyo Ryo-Oki, Magical Girl Pretty Sammy, and Magical Project S, Photon The Idiot Adventures, Dual Parallel World, the criminally underrated Battle Athlete's Victory, and he wrote Gundam 00 and the first two Gundam Build Fighter series. He's also written both Trigun and Gungrave, Scryed, Honey and Clover, Gungale Online, and currently he's a favorite of the Shonen fanboys because he's currently writing My Hero Academia, Mashal, Magic and Muscles, and most importantly... He is handling the Netflix adaptation of Bastard. Yeah, his writing credits are really expansive. And like you said, they're such a mixed bag. You know, I've got a lot of love for a lot of these series because they're ones that I grew up with, you know, either through exposure, like through Toonami, or eventually like purchasing like DVD collections. But some of those series he's worked on are really just... They're kind of mid, and I think it's one of those things where, as an artist, you know, you have to accept that you're not always make great work, um, so you battle that by trying to be as prolific as possible, 
it could be argued that maybe he's a little too prolific for his own good sometimes, but when he hits it out the park, it, it is fucking fantastic. And he is currently, hopefully, in the process of getting a hole-in-one with what he is currently writing, Birdie Wing. Oh, was, wait, is Birdie Wing that anime about, like, it's sort of like golf, but Yu-Gi-Oh? It is a golf anime. A lesbian golf anime. And it's awesome. As we speak, the final episode of the series is set to air this Friday, and I'll probably cut in giving my thoughts on whether or not Kuroda sticks the landing. But yeah, that's an original series from Sunrise, and I love it. Hey guys, Otaku Nate here, cutting in to say that Birdie Wing as a whole is really good. While the finale is a bit on the rushed side, I thought it was an ultimately satisfactory conclusion, and yeah, Kuroda was able to stick the landing, albeit not perfectly, but on the whole, Birdie Wing? Highly recommended. You wouldn't think a golf anime would be this fun, but Birdie Wing pulled it off, so yeah, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I feel like I've heard a couple other like anti-tubers like talk about it, and Mother's Basement in particular gushed about this series. I've yet to give myself the chance to watch it, but just the concept of it alone looked like yeah, the idea of like a tough as nails sort of like underground golfer going into like the mainstream and challenging like the current pro uh, gave me big like sort of Yugi Kaiba vibes, and I was like, yeah, I might be here for this. It is fantastic. And really, it's kind of a shame that we get a good golf anime before we even get an ice hockey anime. One can certainly dream about having an ice hockey anime one of these days. Oh, if only. <laughs> We've kind of deviated from the main. What is Please Teacher about? Oh, Please Teacher is a story about a young man with an unusual medical disease that leaves him with these sort of almost fainting spells that he calls standstills. And despite his useful looks, you find out he's actually a much older teenager. He's actually 18. But he's living out in the countryside with his uncle, who's a doctor, who's allowing him to live with him while also attending to his medical needs. And this young man feels like he's sort of stuck in life, especially after having to deal with what he called his longest standstill, which essentially almost put him in an almost comatose-like state for about three years. As he's walking one day listlessly around his town, he's standing by the water and he sees essentially a UFO. And as he goes to get a closer look, he sees a young woman uh, emerging from the UFO. And he's taken aback by it. In fact, he even thinks it's a dream. It's so outlandish. He's like, nah, nah, nah. I must be hallucinating. He goes to school the next day. His friends make a big deal about them being the new teacher. Turns out, hey, teacher's that alien I saw at the water. And what ensues is a series of both hijinks and secrets that involve this woman, this uh, outer space woman, needing to hide her identity while also ensuring that this young man keeps her secret as well because it potentially jeopardizes her mission on Earth uh, if her secret gets out. There's also romantic entanglements involved that ensue, and it gives 
very sort of cougar vibes, if that's sort of your thing. In fact, when I posted on Facebook or when I cross-shared your post about you covering this episode, one of my friends who's an older friend from MAGFest, she said she had fond memories because it kind of reminded her of her cougar days. She's not that much older than me, but she's older enough where I was like, yeah, I can kind of see that for you. Yeah, so it's 13 episodes of romantic hijinks and emotional stuff in between. Yeah, Nate, how do you feel about this show? Well, I guess this sort of segues into our initial impressions, but first I wanted to ask you something about the premise. Are standstills, like, a thing that happens? Because you work in the world of medicine, and you've seen a lot of people come in for heart or fainting spells, but are, like, standstills a legitimate thing, or did they just make this up for the show? So here's the thing that bothers me about the standstills, right? Because I don't want to get into spoiler territory for anybody who wants to potentially watch this show. Especially if this show gets introduced to you by a close friend or a loved one that has a lot of nostalgia for this show. But the thing that bothers me about the standstills is that the standstills, once you find out what the origin of them are, it's... It comes across as more psychological than physiological. And for any of you who have ever seen Waterboy, the Adam Sandler movie, there's a scene later on at the end of Waterboy where Bobby Boucher's mama is so distraught and upset by the things Bobby's doing that she goes into a coma. But it's later found uh, that mama uh was kind of faking it now that's not to say uh the main character of please teacher k is faking his standstills it is a real thing that affects him but essentially the idea of being so emotionally shut down or traumatized that you kind of put yourself into a self-induced coma is bizarre like the shorter fainting spells i've definitely seen that in people who have like panic attacks or anxiety attacks those make sense like if you pass out then you wake up like half an hour later or something i get those but the three-year one that's wild that is wild so basically they made this up for the show oh yeah they definitely made it up for the show but it's also just like the premise of it is ridiculous it's essentially a self-induced coma uh, brought on by trauma, and I don't know how to feel about it. But it's there. It's a it's a device. It's a it's a writing device. It is what it is. So you've given us the premise. Where did you first hear about Please Teacher? So I definitely remember seeing what's it called, Please Teacher, like ads back when uh, what's it called? They were actually print magazines for anime that were being put out by like uh imagine media which was the same company that used to put out playstation magazine and maximum pc magazine uh they had an anime magazine too i just can't remember what it was called animes it might have been i honestly can't remember but i remember seeing ads for please teacher in those magazines and it would essentially i would also see like trailers uh, in different, like, DVDs I had gotten over the years. And I also remember seeing thumbnails back in the early days of YouTube where you could watch full uh, series, but each episode was broken up into, like, eight-minute clips. So I had definitely seen Please Teacher around, and in particular, the secondary protagonist of the show, uh, Mizuho, the, the extraterrestrial. This jumps the gun a little bit in terms of, like, characters and design. I will admit, 
she definitely has the best design of the show and it's purposeful and it works really well you're meant to be attracted to this woman it's hard to not be she's got a design i think even by today's standards she stands out quite a bit it's simple and elegant and it works quite well for her so i've definitely seen a fair share of artwork of her um but i never sat down to watch the series until more recently uh you had mentioned a while back that you had designs on eventually reviewing this show so i first sat down to watch it like maybe a half a year ago and i was like okay and then i watched it two more times more recently once about two months ago and then again last week and with each subsequent viewing my feelings have changed slightly this isn't necessarily a bad show and i think considering when it came out and also considering the fact that the source material is a visual novel and this anime came out at the beginning of that curve of like visual novel adaptations that were coming out at the time i think it helped set a precedent for what visual novel adaptation should be and i respect it for what it did but man, oh man, is this show hampered by bad writing. Now, we mentioned before that the writer for this show... Yosuke Kuroda. Yosuke has a very checkered history in terms of the quality of his work. The problem I can't parse out, though, is I cannot tell if the issues I have with the storytelling of this show are decisions made by Kuroda or if they're decisions that he has to work around because of the nature of the source material. I am willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and say it's the latter, that because it's a, a visual novel adaptation, there are certain limitations he has to work with in order to convey the story for those who haven't played the game. I can accept that, but if you accept that, what you also have to accept is that the visual novel is probably not written very well. And once you go into the story understanding that, certain things about the show will irk you. They will irk you to no end. And in particular, what irks me to no end about this show, and you expressed this as well leading up to this interview, like in our text messages, the supporting cast is awful, and I don't want to jump the gun, but I do... Oh, my God. Well, I uh, I kind of have news for you. This was actually not based on a visual novel. Oh. I do not know where you got that from. This is an anime original. It was adapted into a light novel, but I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. There is no... It says nothing about it, there being a visual novel. Oh, then that makes it even worse. This is definitely Kuroda's fault, though. <laughs> well, you also would have to fault, then, director Yasunori Ide as well. Oh, God. God, I was always under the impression that this show was like a visual novel, but oh, God. Where I first heard of Please Teacher was, I want to say through advertisements in anime insider and new type usa but the other thing that i saw it from was through anime websites in particular animegalleries.net 
that was sort of like the big image website for various anime images of hot shows of the day. And it's still up to this day, even though it's kind of dead. Yet, from what I can remember, people are still uploading to that site for whatever reason. But I'm getting off track. Really? You'd be surprised. Huh. Um, okay, I'll take your word for it, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> of course, I did see pictures of Please Teacher, and the thing that stood out to me more than anything was, of course, the design of Mizuho Kazami, and I'll talk about that in the animation segment of the show. So I was curious about it, and I'm like, you know, I'm not, I don't have too many rom-coms. Like, I've read the manga for Ranma One Half, and, ugh, love Hina. But Yeah, Love Heat is not good. But Please Teacher looks fun and innocent enough, so I said, you know what? I'll give this thing a shot. And I bought it, and my first anime DVD, or at least from what I can remember that I ever owned, um, it was a bootleg. Oh. Yeah, but it was one of those really good bootlegs where... It, they just ripped the Bandai DVDs to their uh, DVD-Rs. Same menu, same menu music, same subtitles, good video quality. You don't have to worry about the uh, dreaded crab stick subtitles. <laughs> I've since gotten rid of that DVD, but the memory remains. And at the time, I did think that it was a pretty good show. At least that's what I thought. I didn't remember much about it over all these years. I did remember seeing some people said that they didn't like it or that it was awful, but I'm like, eh, you know what, this isn't too bad. Then, when I was in my making cringy channel awesome-esque videos phase of my time on the internet, I decided that I was going to rewatch Please Teacher. I think I got about, like, up to episode four on my second attempt at rewatching it, and... I started seeing the cracks within it. However, I never got around to making that episode. Now that I had a podcast, I said, you know, I'd love to revisit Please Teacher and give it a critical drubbing. And upon giving it a full rewatch this time, I don't think it's bad necessarily, but oh boy, there are so many missteps that this there show really takes. Are. Immediately, though, the first place that this series has not aged well is in animation. Because this is an early digital animated show, and I've made it clear in the past that I genuinely dislike most anime that came out in this time period from around 1998 to around 2003 when studios were making the jump from cell to digital. Some of it doesn't look too bad, but a lot of it just looks... Janky isn't the right word, but, like, really blah. Flat colors, a lack of distinct shading. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree. Like, so for those listening who might be younger, who may have started anime in the time after the full transition to digital, I think started to look good again visually, um, that period, that transition period was kind of rough. There were a couple diamonds in that period, but for every one diamond, the standard was essentially this 
dollar menu burger uh, style of animation. Uh, it's passable. It, it does what it's supposed to. And I will say, considering the context of the show, this being a romance as opposed to this being an action shown in anime, right? I think it fares better in terms of longevity. Because if you compare this to, say, like the early seasons of Naruto, even though Naruto in its early seasons does have some incredible fights, those moments when the animation effort and budget isn't being put into the fights, when it's just people standing around talking or walking through scenery, um, those don't age as well in shonen as they do in rom-coms, I feel. And while this show definitely suffers that same sort of blahness, I can forgive it a little more. I could generally forgive the time period because transitions are rough, and it took some time for the industry as a whole to get used to the new software. But it doesn't change the fact that, like Nate said, they're just rough moments. Like, uh, there's a couple scenes like this, but I want to say it's particular. The first time it really struck me it was like maybe in the second or third episode. Kay is walking out of his house to head to school. And his uncle and aunt are sort of waving him off. And there's this one brief shot of all the characters in profile in front of the house instead of like at two-point perspective angle or something, like a three-quarters angle. And everybody just looks like a coloring book. It, it, that's the only way to describe it. Like everybody's got very thick outlines and the animation's passable, but it legit just looks like somebody took like the fill tool and paint and just was like, yeah, that's good enough. That's good enough. That's kind of my issue with a lot of this early digital animated stuff. A lot of it just feels like it's a coloring book that somebody took a paint bucket tool and just filled it in with. Yeah, yeah. I, For what it's worth, though, there are some moments, I think in particular in the bonus episode, where there is some effort and almost, almost moments of Sakuga, really brief moments of Sakuga, but they are very brief. And they are mostly saved for that bonus episode. You don't really see them too much in the primary series. I do like the character designs, though, and they were handled by Mr. Oh My Goddess himself, Hiroaki Goda. I say Mr. Oh My Goddess because Hiroaki Goda has been the director of pretty much everything when it comes to adapting Oh My Goddess. When they're going to adapt Oh My Goddess, they call on him to do it. He has directed a few other things as well, but he's made a lot of his work as a character designer. Yeah, and you could definitely tell it's his work, because he has a very distinct way of drawing women. And I think if you were to put Bell Dandy next to Mizuho and ask, like, who drew these two characters? Yeah, you really would be able to tell it's the same artist. Goda has a type. And it's a very nice type. It's very, very nice. And his type is Milfy. And it's interesting that you mention Ah My Goddess, uh, especially considering casting. We'll get to that later. But it is appropriate that you mention that because if you're going to have a character designer from Ah My Goddess and a director, that it helps to have certain cast members bring certain characters to life too. Of course, the standout for me is Mizuho Kazami, and I'm not going to mince my words. Her design is perfect. Absolutely 
perfect. I love every single thing about her, and I'm not talking about her body. It's the outfits that she wears, specifically her teacher's outfit. It's the beautiful hot pink hair, those large purple eyes, those glasses. You said Hiroaki Goda has a type, and it is on display with Mizuho Kazami, but it doesn't feel like he's drawing his fetish. There's a certain sense of restraint to Mizuho Kazami, specifically when she's in her more conservative outfits. No, I'll definitely agree. You know, it's not like he's out here drawing a sexy babe for the sake of objectification. Mizuho is gorgeous, right? And she is what's going to catch your attention about this show. Even when the other cast members get introduced, including some of Mizuho's family, Mizuho always stands out, even amongst other beautiful characters of this show. She's just meant to grab your attention. uh, And it's wonderful. My problem, though, with Mizuho's design is that it's such a good design that everybody else around her suffers because of it. Now, this isn't just the problem of, oh, male protags tend to look kind of bland compared to the female ones. I would say even compared to the other female characters, including Mizuho's equally gorgeous mom, Hatsuho. Even for as beautiful as she is, she still pales in comparison to Mizuho. Mizuho is just the right amount of sexy, and dare I not say that when she's... I love her best when she's got her hair done up and she's got those little drills in the back. Yeah, no, it's it's adorable. And then also the moments where you see her at home and she is more casual and she's literally let her hair down and she's relaxed. It's a nice adjustment both visually and also when she's portrayed as a character by her voice actress to sort of see that transition. Like, yes... She takes her job as a teacher seriously, but she's still kind, and when she can take the mask off and not be a teacher anymore, she's equally as attractive just being herself. She's she's wonderful, and it's almost to the point where I wish she had a better show. You do hit the nail on the head, though, because Kazami-sensei, I'm probably going to call her both Mizuho and Kazami interchangeably, but... Kazami-san's design is so gorgeous, and it sticks out so much that the rest of the cast just feel like Gota just drew whatever. The remainder of the character design, specifically Kei's friends, they legitimately feel like supporting characters from a visual novel. They have that sort of look to them, especially in the eyes. The only two in my eyes who stick out are Hyosuke and Kaede. Uh, for me, the two that do kind of stick out, although not to an extreme degree, because again, they do all still look like supporting cast, are Yamada and... So Ichigo's presentation isn't the most outstanding. Like, I've definitely seen characters that look like her before, But you mentioned how the rest of the cast kind of looks like supporting characters and that some of them also look like they're just from a visual novel. If Mizuho was not in this show, the only other character that would potentially be a protagonist is Ichigo. 
And the only reason I say that is because Ichigo gives off big air vibes. She's got the slanted, downward drooping eyes that are big, but also look kind of pained. She's petite, but also cute in her own way. And her her character exudes both sadness and mischievousness. And it's again, it's not the most striking design, but it's enough of a design where even when you see her amongst her friends, you're like, oh, She's different, and you definitely find out how different she is later, but I think those are the only two other designs besides uh, Mizuho that really stand out to me. I was going to say, Ichigo is a short stack without the stack. (laughs) She really is, though. It's a shame, too, because, like, it's almost the appeal of Taiga from Tiger and Bunny, but it's missing the spunk to make her a full protagonist. Because she's so sad. She's so sad. Another famous character designer worked on that show, Masakazu Katsura. I'll say uh, I'll say one one more positive thing about the visuals for Please Teacher. I believe that it was this show that introduced me to the gorgeous Japanese countryside. Yeah, I cannot take that away from this show. the The mountain township that this uh, series takes place in it it is absolutely gorgeous. You know, we spoke in a prior episode about some of the backgrounds in, oh my god, Akka 13. Yeah, we talked this, about that. This yeah. isn't this isn't Akka 13 level beautiful. Nothing can but be. But it's still, it's still very nice to look at. There's plenty of anime that take place in the Japanese countryside, but because of Please Teacher's laid back and breezy nature, you will want to walk through your television and just walk through the beautiful Japanese countryside, and apparently the town that the show takes place in is an actual town in Japan. The setting of the series is Lake Kizaki, which is located in the Nagano Prefecture. Well, if I ever get the chance to go to Japan, I might have a place to go to. They take fo- Oh wow, even photos of this place look gorgeous. No wonder the town looked nice. It's a great advertisement to go to Nagano in Japan, whether you are a Japanese native or a Baka Gaijin. (laughs) Two more observations I want to say. First off, if you take away nothing else for Please Teacher, just know that this show will make you hungry for Pocky. Or I should say, Pochi. Pochi, yes. (laughs) There is a lot of Pocky being consumed in this show. Of course, they do the old anime trick where... They keep the design and logo of the thing that they're advertising, but they just change the letter to avoid copyright lawsuits. That's right. Not everybody can be sponsored by Pizza Hut. (laughs) DK Pepper, Dow Computers. McDowell's. (laughs) No, no. McDaniel. That's my favorite McDonald's knockoff in anime. Yeah. Danny's. Hernican Beer. (laughs) Oh, God. I like to yeah. think that this show was what introduced so many Weeblets to Pocky. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Because, yeah, the, the primary female characters in this show, Mizuho and her family, they all have quite a hankering for Pocky. And also, each one of them consumes a flavor that seems to be very much in tune with their personalities and also their ages. Uh, like, Mizuho's sister is a sucker for the strawberry ones, and her mom only eats the dark chocolate ones. Because she is the sultry type. Of course. And the final thing I want to talk about the animation 
there is one scene that really got a pop out of me, and that is when Kay and Hedikawa, one of the females in the show, go to see a movie. And what movie do they go see? They see Shin Getter Robo versus Neo Getter Robo, as in the actual anime. This show was the original advert for Shin Getter Robo versus Neo Getter Robo before Oshinoko came out 21 years later. <laughs> yeah, they play footage from the show's opening complete with storm over it. Just ugh, beautiful, beautiful. Please, teacher, will make you believe in Getter, and it will make you wish that you were watching Shin Getter Robo versus Neo Getter Robo instead of it. It really will. And that brings us to the sound, and I think Bronx pretty much nailed it. The soundtrack sounds like a visual novel. A lot of MIDI instruments on this one. Cheap MIDI instruments. Yeah, and not only cheap... A lot of the sounds are very tropey, so I have this issue. We've discussed soundtracks for different anime before. Aka 13, you know, has a soundtrack that's very listenable because it had the composer understood that subtlety is just as important as bombast. Other shows we've reviewed on your own, such as what's it called, Guilty Crown, they're known for their bombast, but they really don't have much substance beyond like big noise. I have an issue with certain anime, but particularly with individual novel realm, where the intros are surprisingly catchy. And I kind of like the trancey sound of intros from visual novels around this time. They have, a, I think this is where a lot of the nostalgia for the show comes from, because the opening and closing songs are pretty good. They're pretty good. The intro pulls you in with its energy. The outro is very nostalgic and almost somber. But the stuff in between in the meat of the show sounds tropey. And there's this one particular song I'm very... It doesn't make me angry per se, but it annoys me. And it's the hijinks song when you know something slapsticky is about to happen. Is that the one that it... goes... Oh my god. Between that one, there's another one where, like, it's more so for the hijinks that happen when they're in, like, the other realms or they're in the spaceship, where it's very, like, and that cheap synth is just the primary lead, and it's, it's, I don't like it. I really don't. And other shows have continued to do this over the years, and you would think sometimes, like, we've moved past this. But then you'll watch a show, you'll give it like the three episode test. Like, nah, they're, they're still doing the same thing. They're still. Oh, I, I slipped and I fell and all oh, my face is in your. It's funny you say that because I'm looking at the composer now. He's a guy named Shinji Orito. Yeah. And this guy has made his living composing for visual novels, so it all makes sense. Oh, uh, yeah. There Specifically, you go. In fact... Wait. Oh, my God. He did air. He, he did air and Clannad. Of course it sounds like this. And Canon and Little Busters and Planetarian <laughs> and Rewrite. No. Of course. Of course. Of course. Why would it be anything else? Of course. Jesus. I would like some of the songs on this soundtrack if they were played with actual instruments 
Oh, I'm sure there's some people who have done arranged versions of some of the songs of this, and I'm sure those sound fantastic. But yeah, just a lot of the OST in between is just, you could tell it's just like one guy in his room with like an Akai 48 key keyboard and two audio programs like Audacity and like whatever his choice of DAW is just doing his thing. Like, yep, that's good enough. That's good enough for the show. I would say like something even cheaper, like a Casio SK9. But there is one good thing that we can say that the show does. And you already said it. It's got a hell of an opening. Oh, yes. I yes. love Shooting Star by Kotoko. I think that was one of the first things about the show that grabbed me beyond its character designs. And that was the opening Shooting Star. I love it anytime an anime has a lead-in to the opening and it doesn't happen enough. Yeah, it really is quite wonderful. And like I said, this particular sound, and like you said, um, the composer for the show, having worked on other like projects that are definitely visual novels or visual novel adjacent that have the same feel, you could understand why they sort of went with him in terms of composing this stuff. Planod has an opening that sounds like this. Air sounds almost exactly like this. Like it has this very trancey open vibe to it that's just very resonant on an emotional level. And it'll draw you into the show. And I think especially with the way the opening contrast with the more somber ending uh, of the show, as well as the song that's used in the last episode of the series, they both contrast the opening very well. And I feel like that's where a lot of the nostalgia for the show maybe gets caught up in. Because these songs have so much emotional resonance, I think that's what people sort of remember most besides the character designs. Because you even said yourself, when you first saw the show years ago, you thought it was okay, but you really didn't remember much about it. But that opening, you remembered that. It's just so immediate, like an Alex Van Halen drum solo. It really is. It just hits you full force when it does that little da -da 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 at the beginning. Oh, absolutely. It knows how to jar you in. I describe openings from around the early 2000s as the tasty leftovers of the 90s anime openings. The 90s, again, favorite decade for anime OPs, and Please Teachers is really good. One of the best things about the show, and not really a good sign when one of my biggest praises for the series is its opening, compared to everything else. Yeah. Well, I guess if we're done talking about the music, we should maybe move on to, what, stories, characters? What do you want to discuss next? Well, we gotta talk about the voice acting, and uh, let's start off- So, did you watch the sub or the dub? Because I only watched the dub. I watched the sub, and as always, I have to go through the seiyuu. I only just decided to go for the ones that I felt were worth talking about. And we start with Soichiro Hoshi, who plays K. And this guy's been around. He's been in some other romantic comedies, namely Kaoru Hanabishi in Ayori Aoshi, Makoto Ishiki in Love, Chunibyo, and Other Delusions. He's been in some mystery shows as Keiichi Maibara in Higurashi, and he's the voice of Goro Akechi in Persona 5. And for all of you people who remember this show, he is Son Goku in Sayuki. He also Ooh. seemed to be a favorite of Studio Sunrise. As that same year, 
he would have one of the roles of his lifetime when he played Kira Jesus Yamato in Gundam Seed. It really is an appropriate nickname for him, though, Jesus. Well, if I don't include the Jesus in there, some Gundam Seed fanboys are going to kill me. Like, yeah, they will. People just say that he's Jesus Yamato. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> also, from Sunrise Shows, he was Kazuka in Scryed, Yuki Aiba in Infinite Rivius, Gino Weinberg in Code Geass, and while not a Sunrise Show, I have to mention this because I am about to finish this show... He is Shinji in Symphogear. I still have to get around to watching Symphogear. Hey, I'm going to continue to Symphopill as many people as I can. Uh, like I said, every time I see you posting like GIFs of the transformation, uh, transformation sequences, I get hype. And then I'm like, oh, I've just got to add it to my, my list. You probably will watch all of Symphogear before the boys on Trash Taste do. Yeah, that's true. As for the voice of Kazami... You mentioned this connection earlier, Bronx. Mm-hmm. And all I'm going to say is, if they weren't trying to make this series the next Oh My Goddess, they would not have hired Kikuko Inoue to play Kazami. Yes, Mommy. Because mommy! <laughs> I believe it was this show that introduced me to the beautiful dulcet, velveteen voice of Kikuko Inoue. Mommy, mommy, mommy. She is Every... probably my favorite female seiyuu, and I think she still is my favorite female seiyuu, although she's kind of at some competition, but I will always have a place in her heart as my absolute favorite. She's got one of the most recognizable voices for a seiyuu out there, which is something that I feel has become less and less common. Yeah, it's true. I've even heard like longtime veterans of the industry like Megumi Hayashibara talk about how homogenous voices sound now and how it's harder for people to sort of stand out and like indulge in the individuality of their voices for a streamlined process of a show. And she feels like that's one of the things that's been lost in the industry. I'm inclined to agree with her, but I'm glad because of her legacy that Mizuho's VA has not been forced into that role because she is, I've said it before, I said mommy, you need to understand she is every mommy, right? She's Mizuho, right? She's Bell Dandy, right? She's Lady Demetresque from Resident Evil. She is every MILF you've ever been turned on by in anime <laughs> since 1998. Yeah, she's also Kasumi Tendo in Ranma 1 Half. Sanai in Clanad, Lust in Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood, Miria in Claymore, Aina Sahalin in Gundam The HMS Team. I bring this role up just because I love this show and I'm going to rewatch it this year. Sister Yukariko in My Hime, Carmen99 in Gunsword, Cecile in Code Geass, a lot of sunrise roles I just mentioned. Mm hmm. She's everybody's favorite fucking mother, Eno in Guilty Gear. And Rhea in Fire Emblem Three Houses. I was going to say Lady Dimitrescu, but you beat me to it. Oh, I mean, it's hard to overstate just how how much power is in her voice. The, pow the power. <laughs> she can sweep you off your feet just by speaking. That's how powerful her voice is. It's really something else. And I know we... Are currently addressing the sub. 
but I do have to admit that if we're going to cross-talk about the dub, they did similar treatment for Mizuho, because the same person that played Bell Dandy in the dub also played Mizuho in the dub, and that is Miss Bridget Hoffman. Uh, aside from playing Bell Dandy and Mizuho, she's also best known for playing Kocho and Demon Slayer. Uh, she is both Cosmos and Telos from the Zeno uh, Saga uh, games. She's also, what's her name? Ryoko from Haruhi Suzumiya. And she is also Patamon, believe it or not, from Digimon. So she's got quite the range, but much like her Japanese compatriot, Miss Hoffman is very much a mommy as well. I did not know that she was back in the voice acting game. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that she kind of just took a break or something or retired. No, looks like she's still active. Um, not as active as she used to be, but she's had roles in Demon Slayer, and it looks like she also had some roles in a couple of Netflix movies. So Netflix anime, you mean? No, this one's a 3D animated one called Spirit Untamed. Ah, okay, uh, okay, okay, I get you. Yosuke, one of the only interesting supporting characters, is voiced by Mitsuo Iwata. He's got a few big roles, but there is one that towers over the rest of them. He's Shotaro Kaneda from Akira. Oh. And Kintaro Oe in Golden Boy. Oh. Oh. He is Kuniharu Saiki in The Disastrous Life of Saiki K, Itsuki Takeuchi in Initial D, and Mike Saunders in Galgaigar. Nice. The other only really interesting supporting character, Ichigo, is voiced by Yukari Tamura. And I'm going to say a mouthful here because, oh my god, I had no idea she voiced so many prolific characters. I'd say her most famous and most influential this decade was that she was the voice of Nanoha from Magical Girl Lyrical Nanoha, which I have to ask, how the hell does this not have a U.S. re-release yet? We've got I can't all... say I've ever seen it, so... It, and one other series that I've already mentioned, was extremely important for pushing the Magical Girl genre forward. It started the action Magical Girl genre, which would give us things like Madoka Magica, Yuki Yuna no Yusha, and of course, again, Symphogear. Outside of that, you can hear her as Tenten in Naruto. Priscilla in ReZero, Jibril in No Game No Life, Rika in Higarashi, my favorite character in the show, Harime Nui in Kill a Kill. <laughs> you can also hear her in the Key Trilogy. She is Michiru in Air, Mai in Canon, both the 2002 and 2006 versions, Mei in Clanad. She is Ranfa Franboise in Galaxy Angel. Hope I said that right. Eo in Grand Blue Fantasy. And the other Magical Girl show from that decade that helped push the Magical Girl genre forward. She is Midori in My Hime and My Otome. That's quite a list. That's quite a list. Hey, sometimes you get stacked casts and you don't even know it. And lastly, yeah. Ayako Kawasumi plays Hedikawa probably the only real rival to Kazami in terms of romance. She is Saber, that is the original Saber, Artoria Pendragon, 
in the Fate series. Also from Fate, she is Fu from Fate Grand Order. She is Melfina in Outlaw Star, Fu Ooh. in Samurai Champloo, Osaka in Azumanga Daio, Miwa Iwakura in Serial Experiments Lane, and for all you video game fans, she is Atoli in Dot Hack and Kokoro from the Dead or Alive series. Now on to the dub. I only watched two episodes of it. I don't know, I just felt this dub was kind of there. I will admit, this dub is kind of mid, but the cast members they've gotten are pretty interesting. Just covering a couple of the characters that are more of a standout. Uh, we already spoke about Bridget Hoffman playing Mizuho. You mentioned Kyosuke for the... Let me cut you off. As soon as I heard him speak, my immediate thought was, that's Kirk Thornton. Yeah. Yeah, it's Kirk Thornton. <laughs> it very much is him. You can't not know it's him. Well, he was, like, in everything around this time period. He really was. And he's still a fairly prolific uh, actor. I mean... He's still going strong to this day. I had him sign one of my Planetest DVDs. Oh, nice. Always bring a voice actor something that they would never think anyone would know them from. They will be your friend for life. Just like how I brought my copy of Iken for Bryce Pappenbrook to sign. You really bought a copy of Iken for him to sign? <laughs> yes. Oh my god, man. There are some other prolific people in this dub, too. We've got Michelle Ruff as Hedikawa, Julianne Taylor as Ichigo, Melissa Fan as Kaede, Michael McConaughey and Karen Strassman are Kay's adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. Hell, even Wendy Lee makes a brief appearance in this show. Yeah, she plays Mizuho's mom. Mm-hmm. She also plays uh, Nachan, who's the little girl that sort of wants to crush on Kay, but oh, it's not... <laughs> this has really big 30 year olds playing teenagers energy to it and i hate to say this but i feel the weak link in this dub is dave wittenberg as k he's really good at playing dorky characters but he was not the right pick for k yeah it's kind of surprising considering i feel for like dub actors he got picked almost perfectly for his most notable role of Kakashi from Naruto. I feel his sort of like dry delivery in that uh, role works really well. But K, K just doesn't work for him. He's trying, but not really. His rasp does not work well for K. It doesn't. He, you could tell, like, he's sort of trying to pull, like, a falsetto, make his voice a little lighter, a little softer, but it's it's not easy for him to do. You could tell it's not his natural cadence. Yeah, a lot of times I feel that, that some actors around this time period are miscast. More or less, they're, like, put in roles just because of their name or, like, they couldn't find anyone else. And this really is a case where I get the feeling they couldn't find anybody else for K. Yeah, I kind of get that impression as well. Especially if you look at um, Dave Wittenberg's like other work. I mean, he's been voicing Kefka since Dissidia in 2011. And a character with that sort of maniacal edge to them. And then transitioning to something soft and 
insecure like hey it's not to say actors can't do it they're definitely actors with range but some people just can't do it i don't think he's one of them unfortunately a shame really yeah uh but i think even despite you know dave's being the weak link performance in the dub it's also not a terrible dub you know you mentioned how this period of anime as a transition from cell shaded to digital animation and coloring how it's sort of great on you because its presentation feels kind of hackneyed but i can honestly say i get a similar impression of voice acting around this time like studios whether they were short-lived like the one that did uh die guard or long-standing ones like bang zoom who were the production company for the dub for um please teacher uh that's still active to this day you know regardless of their tenure i felt like this period was very I feel like there was a lot of competition in the sphere at that time, especially for DVD releases. And a lot of production companies were more about quantity over quality. Is that the impression you get? Because I feel like that's the impression I get from this show. Considering that a few episodes ago I reviewed Daphne and the Brilliant Blue and I got roughly the same impression from it, I would have to say that that's a yes. So many of these dubs, at least from this time period, really do feel like they are quantity over quality, and they do suffer from it. I don't watch enough modern dubs to see if that's the impression, but I do get the feeling that if they're going to dub something, regardless of quality, they're going to put their all into it. Yeah, I mean, there's still some dubs that I see of more modern anime where... I feel like, much like with the current, the seiyuu industry in Japan right now, where voices are more homogenous, they're not quite as diverse as they used to be, they're at least putting in good performances. I can at least say from the dub side of what I've seen, uh, especially of dubs like My Hero Academia, for example, stuff being covered by um, like Crunchyroll and their affiliates, it's a very similar sort of deal. Like, the performances feel more homogenous than they did back in the day but what we lack in diversity we at least are getting more emotionality out of the performances so it's a give and take i do kind of wish there was more diversity in voice acting across the board though i do kind of miss the gruffer voices of like the late 80s and early 90s yeah well we're getting more variety in dubs i should say though because we've got so many new actors coming into the fold that is true but i feel like just as an aside before we continue, I feel video games are getting the, the higher quality diversity in dubs than they are in sub, uh, than anime is. That's just my impression, though. And so, we gotta talk about the show itself, unfortunately. And I will say, I was ready to come on this show and give Please Teacher a shellacking. Because if there is any romance trope in anime that I hate more than anything, it is the wish-fulfillment romance. A guy who is a total loser, is hopeless, but suddenly a girl walks into his life, and all of a sudden that hole that he has in his soul is fulfilled, or whatever. I don't like romances like that. Sometimes they can work, though. I'm okay with this romance so long as it's subverted, like in a Sobini Ikuyo, 
or it becomes a be careful what you wish for scenario like Oh My Goddess or Monster Musume. And these are all shows that I like. Please Teacher Meanwhile is just... Well, I want to say it's just kind of there. I'll give it this, though. Compared to other things like Sword Art Online or Darling in the Franks or most modern isekai shows nowadays, I don't think that Please Teacher's intentions are bad. There is some sincerity on display here because K as a hero is not portrayed as being just this total hopeless loser. A lot of his social failures come from his own anxiety. And on paper, the way you should handle a romance between him and Kazami is that Kazami needs to be sort of his shoulder to lean on. Somebody who's just simply there to comfort him after a long day. She is not meant to be... Well, we'll get to the twist that I really don't agree with. But the ideas behind Kazami being sort of a comforting mentor to K are noble. That's the best thing I can say about it. In concept, it's not bad. In execution, bleh. Yeah, this... I've done a lot of humming and hawing, I think, through this episode about this show and its story. And I'm inclined to agree that there are moments where this show can be charming. And there are moments where I feel like this show is trying to say something. My problem lies in not only the execution, but in particular, how do I put this? So the execution of this show, particularly of some of its obstacles, it's done through other characters. And that's not a bad thing. You know, this is a rom-com, right? Interpersonal drama is the crux of these things. You know, despite the fact that Mizuho is from outer space, at its core, this is about relationships and people. My big issue with the storytelling and the conflicts that arise is, as I mentioned before very briefly, we were talking about our thoughts in chat prior to recording this episode, and you and Bai both came to a consensus that the secondary and tertiary characters, they're incredibly annoying. What I do not like about this show's execution is that the obstacles that tend to come up between Mizuho and Kei that aren't directly from either Kei's anxiety that lead to his standstills or Mizuho's role both as his teacher and as his partner is that the other characters are one-dimensional to the point where they exist only as conflict points. They don't exist as characters. And once you see what each conflict point is, it is painful to watch because essentially what you're seeing is like NPCs in a game. You're not seeing a world that's lived in. And that bothers me because I want both the hijinks and the drama to feel real. But the hijinks and drama only feel real with maybe two, three other characters 
outside of Mizuho and K. Everybody else just feels like an obstacle in the form of a person. One objection that I have to say from my end, and this is a spoiler and I don't care. In the second episode, K and Kazami get trapped in a PE storage facility. And this is shortly after Kazami starts teaching. And, you know, she's worried that because she was caught with a student in a PE storage facility that she's going to be fired from there. But then Kay objects by saying that Kazami is his wife. And that, to me, is kind of the first strike against this show. As soon as Kay says that he's going to marry Kazami, or says that he is married to Kazami, and they do go through with the marriage thing, that's when my complaints about this show being wish fulfillment start to rear their head. I don't like them as a married couple. I like them as a couple, but married? No, absolutely not. I refuse it. Blech. I can understand that. I feel like when the show is taken in the context of just K and Mizuho, just them, because of the age difference between them and their character dynamics and how they shift between being in school as student and teacher and being out of classroom as a couple, right? I feel like the show is at its strongest because it's trying to say, like you said, you know, K needs Mizuho to be his shoulder to lean on. And Mizuho sort of needs K to sort of help guide her through the intricacies of life on Earth that maybe she doesn't understand or that she's sort of forgotten about because of her age, regardless of the cultural differences between them because of being different species, technically. That being said, when taken into context with everything else around the show with them, yeah, as a married couple... They, they don't work i agree with the sentiment that they say at one point where it's like you can learn to love somebody and that's fine you know but i feel there's a bunch of other shows where for example arranged marriages are the crux of the drama and you learn to love somebody through an arranged marriage in a culture like an indian or islamic culture and i find those work better than what they're trying to push forward in please teacher feels like i feel like there's something there but it's not it's not clicking. It feels like it's a shotgun wedding more than anything. It really does. And the wedding to me just feels so insincere. The ideal scenario for this is that Kazami takes Kay under her wing and she teaches him how to control his emotions, how to overcome his anxiety to the point where his standstills ultimately go away. Kazami is somebody that he needs to earn. Them getting married out of the gate just rubbed me the wrong way. It feels undeserved. At least Keiichi dialed the wrong phone number to end up with Bell Dandy. At least Ataru had to play a game in order to get Lum. What did Kei do to earn Kazami as his waifu? Well, apparently he stared at her breast and she liked it, so she gave him a kiss. Uh, yeah really squicky <laughs> but again there are some good ideas here the problem is that they're just not well executed 
and this leads me to another issue that I have with the show. This show has a serious show-don't-tell problem. There's a lot of stuff that we're told surrounding Kazami and a few others, but we're never really shown it. Like, we know that Kazami came to Earth to become a teacher, but we don't really see her teach. Yeah, it's true. And even if teacher's technically a guise for the other job she's doing on Earth, even then, you don't really see much of that other job either. And I don't necessarily mind if certain aspects of a character are diminished for the sake of storytelling. But again, like you said, animation is a visual medium. Even in something more drama-heavy or down-to-earth, like a rom-com, it still helps if you show and don't tell. And the fact that a lot of this is presented in expository dialogue, it's disappointing. Especially if, when it comes to when we're talking about secondary characters, one of the only truly interesting ones is Ichigo. I won't say why that is for the sake of spoilers, but when Ichigo's backstory is explained, I want to see that. And I especially want to see that in terms of how it relates to K and K's realization about why Ichigo is the way she is. But they just talk about it, and it's also... It gets addressed, but it gets addressed in such a rushed way where it doesn't feel satisfying in the way it concludes, um, at least as far as Ichigo goes. Yeah, I don't want to say it gets swept under the rug, but it's just... Yeah, this show doesn't really do a good job of wrapping up certain things for certain characters. We also don't see too much of Mizuho Kazami's life as an alien. She is sent to Earth to monitor humanity and what have you. But again, we don't see too much of her doing that. She said that she has been to Earth before and that she fell in love many centuries ago, but we don't know who it is she fell in love with. It's just unsatisfactory arc of unsatisfactory arc on this show. Yeah, it's really true. And it's to the point where the other things that do happen, even in terms of like romantic drama, to some of the characters around them, particularly Hyosuke uh, and his love interest, that feels like the realest relationship in the show. Even if you look at Mizuho and Kei's like, relationship, even as the protagonist, because of the nature of their relationship, and like you said, the sort of almost wish fulfillment of their relationship, it's not the most realistic relationship of the show, especially when you talk about like having to earn love interest. The most realistic one is Kiyosuke and Kaede. It's the one I believe the most. And, and I think that sort of segues into my other big problem with Please Teacher. A good romance anime gives us plenty of time to spend with the main characters, to figure out their dynamics, to see how they vibe with each other, play off one another. Please Teacher, meanwhile, gives us more time spent with Kay's friends. And boy, oh boy, these people are the definition of uninteresting yeah who's your least favorite of case friends i think we're probably gonna agree but i want to hear it from you 
I would say Magatu or, or yeah, Matagu, there we Matagu. go. Matagu simply because you can take him out of the show and he would change nothing, absolutely it's nothing. True. He contributes zilch to the greater scheme of things. Yeah, I will say right. So this is jumping the gun a little bit, and we're not going to talk about it in full here. Because I'm sure Nate is probably going to want to do an episode on it in the future. But there is a sort of spinoff slash sequel to this show called Please Twins. Matago doesn't really do anything impactful until the bonus episode of Please Twins. And even then, it's not him doing something. It's something that happens to him. That's how useless Matago is as a character. A majority of K's friends feel interchangeable. What do you get from subtracting them from the equation? Not much. Uh, I get less annoyed. I get less annoyed. Outside of, like I said, outside of the moments of Kiyosuke and Kaede discussing, like, issues of their relationship and certain aspects of Ichigo, for the most part... Um, I get less annoyed, because even though there are aspects of these characters I like, those aspects that I do like are also, much like this show, overshadowed by the things I don't like. Like, Kiyosuke and Ichigo, like I was saying before, they exist primarily to be foils to Kei and Mizuho, given human form. And Kiyosuke is obnoxious. And Ichigo is mischievous. And both of those things come together in such a way where they are constantly getting in the way of what should be character development for those two, but then turns into half-hearted hijinks. And I don't like that. I get I'm okay with hijinks. I don't like the way hijinks are expressed in this show, though. I get the feeling that my dress-up darling sort of gave us new standards as to what a romantic comedy can be in anime, in terms of how you can write a relationship. And part of the reason why Marin and Gojo's relationship is so endearing is that the author knows that the series is about them and their relationship together. And we spend a lot of time with both Marin and Gojo. There are other characters within My Dress Up Darling, but the author knows not to let them get in the way of our main two's relationship. But in Please Teacher, Kuroda and Ide insert K's friends any moment that Kazami and K are about to do something interesting, and it really undermines the goodwill. It really does. It does, and I can't tell if it's better or worse when Mizuho's family comes to visit. Oh god, I forgot about them. Yeah. 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 So we've got two more people to add to the fetish list on here. We have mm-hmm. we have Mizuho Kazami's MILF mom named Hatsuho. Mm-hmm. And her lowly little sister named Maho. They are only introduced to be eye candy and nothing more. Yeah. And again, as I mentioned, a lot of characters exist only to be obstacles 
for as annoying as I find Kyosuke and as mischievous as Ichigo can be, no one is more annoying in the show than Maho. No one. Absolutely not. Her sister complex, even for anime with like sibling complexes, is incredibly over the top. And I know it gets played up for hijinks, like, you know, stay away from my sister, I'll kill you. But <laughs> it's not so funny when a little girl is legitimately trying to kill you. But she does. She attempts to try to kill Kay on several occasions. The only noteworthy thing that she does is there is one shot of her where she gives the viewer a thousand yard stare of death. And that's it. Oh, yeah, that's right. She does do that once. Again, so many needless characters in this show. And if you take them out, I honestly think that you have a pretty good coming-of-age story between Kazami and Kay. You just have to take out the marriage aspect of it, that's all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the marriage is a very sort of hackneyed um, sort of mechanic or trope to sort of keep things interesting. But like you said, considering the circumstances under which Kay is in high school still, despite being 18, and the fact that you know, he does find himself in this relationship with Mizuho, the idea of them working together to sort of adapt to their life together and also individually and the new circumstances they face, because they're both fish out of water. Like, Kay woke up from what was essentially a three-year coma, and Mizuho's from another planet and hasn't been to Earth in centuries, right? They're both aliens in their own way. There's a story there. There's a story in and of itself. You don't need the rest of this. The but that story doesn't get told. It has good intentions. I'll give it that. But its execution is just so muddled. It really is. And it's a shame, too. Because, like you said, the, the things that do stand out about this show that are positive, I can understand, again, the nostalgia for this show. Mizuho's gorgeous. Even by today's character design standards, she stands out. She's simply beautiful. Aspects of this show's sound design, particularly the opening and closing credit theme songs, they're great. And there's nostalgia there for, again... I was mistaken in that. I thought this was based on a visual novel, but this show has big visual novel vibes. And if you were to watch it alongside the things that actually are visual novel adaptations, like Kanan or Air or Clannad, it would fit right alongside them and fits perfectly in terms of back-to-back -back viewing. So it works for what it is in terms of its tropes, but the sum is not greater than the parts of the whole for this anime. And that's my biggest problem with it. it. The pieces don't fit together the way they're supposed to. It does have a bonus episode, though, and uh, oh, there's not boy. much meat for us to say other than this is the episode where Kay and Kazami fuck. Yep. It's also, admittedly, you know, we were complaining before about the animation, right? And how it looked very coloring book and bucket fill. This is the only episode that has slight moments of Sakuga or like realistic looking animation um, because there are some moments in this bonus episode where characters make expressions or do little things physically where it's like, oh shit, they could move. 
they're not just, you know, flash animated figures going across the screen. Who knew? I kind of like it. And I gotta say... And it also has some of the only comedy, I feel, kind of works in this show. Even if some of that comedy sort of treads into light harem territory. But that being said, this bonus episode is just like, okay, the sex happened. There you go. It was a very nice sex scene. It's better than the sex scenes that I had to endure in Mad Bull 34. (laughs) It doesn't make up for the rest of the garbage throughout this show. I will also say, too, there is... It's played for laughs, but there is something I do find kind of weird about this show. Uh, Or rather, about this bonus episode. So, it's already established once Maho and Hatsuo come to visit that they've sort of been keeping tabs on Mizuho, both in terms of communication and also visually, like little hidden cameras throughout the house. But Maho in particular seems to have a um, distinct voyeurism fetish that doesn't get fully addressed. It's brought up, but... Yeah, they don't really address the fact that Maho seems to have a kink for watching her sister be intimate. I've complained on this show about show don't tell, and this is one of the cases where I wish that they didn't tell us anymore. Yeah, they really didn't need to. I don't know if I have much more to say about this show. Like, I don't hate the show, but it's one of those things where... Because I see the potential it has, and the fact that it didn't live up to that potential, it just fills me with disappointment. I understand why people may have nostalgia for it, and I understand why I resonated with certain friends that commented on my Facebook post about me being on this episode with you reviewing the show. I think if you're watching this with somebody that you are physically and romantically intimate with especially during that time in the early aughts or even the early 2010s you're being cozy with somebody for a weekend eating pizza on the couch you watching anime on your playstation 3 on a dvd there's a charm to watching that show and having those memories intermingle with the themes of this show And I understand how that can create nostalgia for this show. So I won't take that away from anybody. But if you look at the show outside of that sort of context, outside of having an emotionality or even a sensuality connected to the sensuality that's reflected in the show when those moments happen, it is not good. And it's a shame because I feel like this show could have been great. Alright, since you've pretty much given your final thoughts, I guess I'll give mine. Please, teacher, again, has good intentions. It's not all bad. I want to stress, there are some good moments in here. The problem is that there's way too many missteps with how it uses its supporting cast. There's some unnecessary fan service, like the Beach episode, which we didn't get to talking about which should have been solely about Kazami and Kay on vacation, but nope. Kay's friends just so happen to be in the area, and uh uh-oh, we get an implied assault scene that is played for laughs. No. 
We also didn't mention, I realized this, like, we spoke about some of the other annoying characters. We didn't even mention the, uh, the other love interest for Kay. What, um, Kay's adoptive parents? And how they're terrible people? Yeah. Kay's dad is pretty much the show in a nutshell. He means well, but he's kind of a jerk. He really is. And his wife merely exists to be boinked by him. Yeah, yeah, she really does. Anyway, back to final thoughts. I would not recommend this show if you are looking for a good rom-com, but if you do want to watch it out of curiosity, it is streaming on Crunchyroll and for free on Nozomi Entertainment's YouTube channel, Sans the Bonus episode, which, you know, outside of K fucking his teacher, you're not missing anything. Yeah. I mean, if I had to say one other thing about this show in closing before I say anything else, I mean, it's still better than its sequel series. It's still better than Onigai Twins. Oh, God, yeah. You mentioned this earlier, but Please Teacher was popular enough and well-remembered enough to the point where it got a sequel series, Please Twins. And while you will see some people stick up for Please Teacher, I have not seen too many positive reviews for Please Twins. This isn't like a My Hime, My Otome thing, where Otome's reception is a little more mixed, but trends toward positive. No, people really don't like Please Twins. Yeah. Maybe if Nate decides to do it, maybe we'll talk about Twins another time. Uh, but like the second or third time I watched sensei i also decided to watch twins right after oh god that was i don't know how i managed to make it through that show well we'll cross that bridge but not immediately because i want to review something good hopefully so bronx before we leave where can we find you on social media uh you could find me at bronx kuma art on instagram bronx kuma at art station and also bronx kuma on twitter uh i do commissions i specialize in fantasy uh and sci-fi art uh comic book style art um i also do era work under the name uh, naughty grizzly studios so if you're looking for something a bit more risque uh i do nude life drawings and some more etchy slash hentai work there um if you're interested follow me at naughty grizzly studios at twitter um and other than that yeah uh nate as always uh thank you for having me on the show man it's always fun doing these with you and if you want to follow me on social media, you can do so at Otaku Nate Show on Facebook and Twitter. And you can follow me at Nintendo Wii on Instagram, where I'm constantly posting photos of myself at or watching sporting events. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a like, give us a review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, any place you get your podcasts from. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, it's our first follow-up episode as we once again put on our capes and tights to look at japan's own take on the western style superhero with the movie duology of tiger and bunny because we are going to be looking at both tiger and bunny the beginning and tiger and bunny the rising do they fix some of the problems we had with the television series 
Or is it just kind of a letdown? Well, we'll find out next time as well as even more discussion as to why Tiger and Bunny didn't really take off in the West. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. And Bronx Kuma. And we're signing off and saying... <sighs> I got it bad. Got it bad. Got it bad. I'm hot for teacher. Oh god, I can't believe it. <laughs>